Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Went to see the club doctor. Within 10 minutes, he said, Gary, you're a diabetic. My career as a professional footballer, I'm 40, would be over. Picked up the phone. Said, is that Gary Mabbitt? I said, yes. It's Bill Nicholson here. So I took my training shoes off. Got back to Heathrow. Went to put them on. They've gone. Been, they've gone. Disappeared. Oh, they've gone. You've got to realise, <laughs> footballers are like big kids. <laughs> Here we are for another episode of Off The Shelf, with me, Michael Dawson, and my co-host, Paul Miles. How are you, mate? I'm all good, thank you, Dawes. How are you? I'm very well. Better for seeing you. Thank you very much. We have got the definition of a legend here with us today. We certainly Really are. needs no introduction, but let's do it anyway. I mean, 611 games. He'll say 612. 611 games. Captain for 11 years, Dawes. 11 years. FA Cup winner. 1991 really one of the good guys around this football club that we all love it can only be Gary Mabbott Mabsy welcome Mabs great to have you 611 well you might say 612 that's incredible absolute pleasure to be here and uh, as I say obviously to to be on the show and talking about football uh, it's always great and uh, as I say obviously you know Marcy for a long long time now and uh, obviously Dorsey we've known each other for a good Good time, so it's a good group to be working with today. But we're going to start, Mabs, all the way back as a young child growing up in Bristol. Can you tell us how you were as a kid, your upbringing? Yeah, no, I was uh, born in Bristol and uh, born into a footballing family. My father was a footballer for Bristol Rovers, uh, mainly in the English third divisions. He then played for Newport County in the fourth division. So growing up, I was a big Bristol Rovers fan. And then, of course, I became a, a tangerine Tommy with the uh, with Newport County. So, yes, I, I was into football and uh, myself and my brother both loved it. And so, of course, we wanted to follow in my father's footsteps. Uh, I went to a grammar school in Bristol, which was a bit slightly difficult because they sort of played more hockey and lacrosse and uh, rugby, more importantly than than football. But uh, I I was still playing uh, football all the time. And uh, when I left school after my O-levels, I was very young. I was still 
my birthday's the end of August. So, of course, uh, I was always the youngest in the year. So it meant that I was, uh, did my O-levels in the May. And then in the June, I signed for Bristol Rovers as an apprentice when I was still 15 years of age. So then, yes, I had five years at Bristol Rovers um, and played 138 games there, scored 12 goals at Bristol Rovers. And, yeah, mainly in the second and third divisions. So, and then, of course, uh, the time came whereby my contract was up. And that's when the, uh, uh, the move came. You, you, so, sorry, man. You said there you went to a grammar school. Were you academic? I can imagine the way you speak, everything about you, the, your mannerisms. You were a clever kid. Uh, I wasn't a I wasn't a genius at school. Um, that but, surprises uh, but me. But again, most. well, no. But I had to work hard. I mean, again, uh, all the O levels I should have got. Mm. Everyone got cookery or metalwork or woodwork. I got maths, English, chemistry, history, and geography. So basically, I got all the tough ones. Um, but but again, it, it was it was through hard work. Um, the school, what I think it did give me at grammar school was uh, all about respect, integrity and uh, how, how to hold yourself and how things should be done in the correct manner. So I think that, that was quite a good schooling, a good education for me as well. And yes, I came out with five O levels. You needed four then to stay on and do A levels. But of course, I got offered an apprenticeship at Bristol Rovers and, uh, and so I took it. Mabzi, what I, I mean, football is in your blood, in your family blood. But at what age... Did you know? At what age did you know, I want to do this? I want to do this as a career and I'm, I'm good enough? To be honest, uh, throughout my time at, uh, at grammar school, um, I was playing um, every Sunday. I was playing for like a Bristol Rovers junior team. And so all that time, you're thinking, you've got a chance here. And keep working hard, keep improving yourself. I mean, I was, uh, when I was sort of 10 years of age, um, we had a, uh, like a carport in our back garden and it was just concrete and so I used to go up there and I was right footed and my left foot was useless so I used to come home from school my father wouldn't let me go out and train until I'd done my homework so I'd go out and do my homework first and I was to go out on my own we had a floodlight in the in the carport as well and for six months I just stood there with my left foot kicking controlling kicking controlling um, and to be honest, uh, by the time I came to Spurs, my left foot was nearly as good as my right foot. So again, all those sort of advantages, when I talk to people, uh, I do a lot of uh, conferences, I do a lot of leadership talking, uh, speeches for companies. I do go to a lot of schools, do other sort of events and uh, youth football, junior football. And basically, I always say that to them is basically, if you want to be a top player, don't worry about your strengths. They will grow naturally. Your weaknesses, you've got to concentrate on. That's the difference between getting to somewhere you want to be or, or falling short. Very good. And it's true. That's amazing. You said you couldn't use your left foot. That, no. That is, that is, was, that's to all the young people out there. The older people, if you practice and work hard at something that maybe is not as good, you can get it to, uh, to where it was. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, it takes time. It's not, mm. uh, you know, it's, uh, I was 10 years of age. And so suddenly to go out there all the time just with your left foot. So when I started with it, you know, you could hardly, I mean, touch the ball with your left foot. And then by the time you finish, you could kick it, you could control it. Yeah, of course, you, you work in, uh, because when you train with naturally with a team or at school, whatever, your strengths will always grow naturally. You always use them because you want to show how good you are. For your weaknesses, you won't go near because you don't want to be embarrassed by doing that. And so, in fact, I mean, we had uh, a player here who was coming through and played alongside me, Sol Campbell. And Sol was a good good friend and we, his left foot wasn't as good as he wanted it to be. So we stayed behind training, uh, you know, for time after training with him, just using our left foots, him to me. And, and then we do, when we come in as a team, you do like uh, crossing and finishing as you do it in pairs. Knock the ball out wide, they cross the ball into the box and then you come in to finish it. And... I always made Sol 
knock it out there with his left foot. And of course, imagine a football team doors, you know, the, the Mickey taking and the, yeah, yeah. when he first started it, the ball was going out there and going out there everywhere. Um, and, but, you know, he concentrated on it. And to be fair to him, his left foot became, you know, he was very, very decent with his left foot in the end. So, yeah, even when he got to that sort of age, 18, 19, you can still improve. Yeah. I played my last game for Spurs when I was coming up 37 years of age and uh, I was still learning. It's funny that he speaks there uh, about Saul. Andy Robertson was the same at Hull City. Obviously, you see what he's doing at Liverpool now. And we had Tom Huddleston, who everyone knows, he could strike a ball right foot, left foot. And we worked with Andy Robertson. And I was even then at 31, 32, still staying out and practicing with my left foot. And Robbo was doing his right foot. And it just shows you can, you never stop learning, never stop improving, just keep keep practicing. It's incredible. Yeah, no. Absolutely. I mean, in, in training, it was the same. Mm. Uh, we used to do a, a thing in training at the start called, called Rondas, where you get in a yeah. circle. So every day before training, before the coaches came out to sell us out for our sessions, we'd all get in a big circle. And it used to be a lot of fun. You know, nutmegging players. I was be, just about like to say, Mabs, it used to be me getting megs every day. Kino <laughs> used to try it every day. And then I'd try and lift them and it get worse. Before you know it, it's not one meg, there's two megs, three megs. It's an absolute ah, nightmare. Well, no, I mean, that came about. Yeah. Obviously, basically, Rondas is a, a piggy in the middle, basically. Always a two in the middle. All right, so you got one touch on the outside and if you obviously knock a bad pass or you, they get the ball you have to go in so basically that's what it is uh, but you imagine yes exactly that everyone's trying to concentrate to start with but then suddenly if you've got someone in there so the passes get to 10 15 20 then they're flying around even more and everyone's going all in and they're taking the mickey out of them yeah, of course there's the likes of Gaza and stuff you can imagine that he was nutmegging from the very start you know everyone else would leave it a little bit longer but no from the very first time you started. First ball was kicked, guys would try and nutmeg you or flick it over your head or, yeah. But no, brilliant times. Around the time that you would have been joining Bristol Rovers, you had a seismic change in your life, Mavsy, didn't you? And this is obviously a, th a theme of your life ever since. And that was you, uh, obviously, uh, diagnosed as being a diabetic and a type one diabetic, which just to explain to, to the people listening and watching that you get a type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes type 1 diabetes is much more serious Mavzi. um requires a lot of injections a lot of insulin control i've spoken to this many times because i'm a diabetic myself but at that time you were basically told you were not going to be a footballer you could not be a professional footballer because you are a type 1 diabetic T tell the tell the guys about that conversation you had, and obviously you proved them all wrong. Yes, I mean, I was playing in the first team at Bristol Rovers, Marzi, and uh, I started to feel you know, a bit unwell, sort of around Christmas time. And yeah, I didn't know quite what it was. I was very, very thirsty. I was drinking a lot. Uh, but we played a lot of games over Christmas. And then, so over Christmas, uh, I didn't feel too bad. Um, but then New Year's Day, we were away at Leicester. And... I was playing for Bristol Rovers against Leicester. We lost 3-0. I probably had my worst game ever uh, as a footballer. And I came off the pitch at the end. I felt awful. The manager said, look, I'm, I'm dropping you for the next game. Uh, you were awful today, Gary. I said, he said, what's the problem? And I said, look, I haven't been feeling too well. Uh, and being over Christmas, when I first mentioned it, before this game, I think everyone thought I'd been out drinking or <laughs> you know, partying because I was thirsty all the time, which can happen. Uh, just to let you know, by the way, I've never been drunk in my life, Marzi. Never had a pint of beer in my life, never been drunk in my life so far. So yeah, there we go. But anyway, they, they thought I'd been out drinking and very thirsty the following morning. Um, but anyway, I got back uh, to Bristol after that game at Leicester. And I said, look, Gary, let's just take you to the club doctor. Went to see the club doctor. Within 10 minutes, he said, Gary, you're a diabetic. What's that? I mean, diabetes 44 years ago. No one really knew much about it. Um, 
so I went into hospital straight away. Uh, the doctors uh, obviously told me I had to be on injections for the rest of my life. They told me that uh, I'm going to have to do testing for the rest of my life. Um, and said that my career as a professional footballer, unfortunately, would be over because no one has ever been able to go through a sporting career. Uh, people have diabetes. They don't tell people about it. They keep it quiet because they're scared of losing their job or not being able to get a job or with their friends at school or whatever. Not yeah. So everyone kept it quiet. It was a, And they said, look, do you want to keep it quiet, Gary? And I said, well, no, I don't want to keep it quiet, but obviously my concern is that you're telling me that I can't ever play again. So my father contacted three of the top diabetic specialists. We got names from um, from the diabetic charity in the UK at the time. And uh, two of them were overseas. One was here. And they all said, look, it would be impossible because the demands of a professional footballing career, every single day, matches, night matches, day matches, you've got to have injections every single day. Trying to be able to work that out is going to be impossible. Um, so... Obviously, I was feeling a bit, uh, a bit down about it. And of course, what people knew about diabetes, this just shows really what it was like. So, okay, diabetics, basically, doors, if you had 20 bars of chocolate now, mm. your pancreas would produce insulin to keep your blood sugars level, okay? Automatically. But in a diabetic, the pancreas has basically stopped working. So there's no insulin coming out into the body. So whatever sugar you have, your sugars just go sky high and sky high. And... Up until the 1920s, uh, within a few weeks, you'd be dead. Mm. Um, but then, of course, they discovered insulin in the 1920s, and so you can lead a life. Uh, but it was a life that was very different. Um, so my brother came to see me with my parents in hospital on the first day I was there. So just said, you can't have sugar. And I said, sugar problem, you can't have sugars, you can't have whatever. He came in with my mum and dad. He brought me two shoot magazines, a match weekly, and a box of Maltesers. <laughs> That's how people knew about it. Yeah. So, no. And then the father kept, uh, got another name of a gentleman, and uh, we contacted him in the UK. And he said, look, no one's ever done it before, Gary, but I can see you're determined. He said, if you want to give it a try, I'll back you. But believe me, we're not expecting to have uh, good results. So I said, fine. So we started working on it. And then I was back playing the Bristol Rovers first team within four weeks of being diagnosed. Wow. Um, so, and then basically you didn't have blood testing then, you had just little sticks you had to, uh, you had to pee onto and it would come up on the stick what sort of level your sugars were at. It had to be at a certain level before you could play a game, otherwise you could go into a coma during the game. So all these things had to be taken into account. Um, and so it was quite funny because people, uh, even now, I go and do... Q&As and different events and speeches and you, they can ask you questions. And I well, a question recently, I said, Gary, um, we also we know you're diabetic, uh, but you had to, had to take injections. But were you taking, is it, is it vitamins to help you? What are you taking? Why, why do you take the, in, the injections? I said, well, basically to stay alive. Mm. <laughs> you know, without my injections, then mm. uh, I wouldn't be here. Uh, so, yeah, and so, yeah, every day throughout my time at Tottenham, I was on four injections every single day. So whether you're, whether, wherever you're playing, training, matches. In fact, the last time we won the FA Cup in 1991, I came off at half-time at Wembley and did a blood test. Blood sugars were high, so I had, had an injection at half-time. Yeah. And honestly, it was insulin. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's amazing to, to speak about, Mabs. Mabs, you, you touched on it there. My brother's a diabetic as well. And, and to see what people have to go through until anybody knows or it's part of the, the family, 
it's the ones closest to who have to help you through them hard times. You must have periods, turns, do you still have them or is everything controlled and everything is your own because you look so well, you look after yourself? Well, no, uh, George, it doesn't quite work that way, unfortunately, no. because no, I, diabetics I don't, yeah, yeah. because you can have a an upset tummy and that mm. changes all of your balance. Yeah. You can have a row with the wife, that can change mm. your balance. You know, all those little things happen in life, uh, you know, before big games or playing a game where it's very hot or all that has an effect on how the sugars in the body get regulated. So, no, basically, I have at least 10 blood tests every day. So mm. before I drive a car anywhere, have a blood test. Before I did this show this morning, did a blood test to make sure you know exactly where you are. You always carry um, sweets with you. Yeah. So basically, I've always carried fruit pastels with me for like 44 years now, always in my pocket or in my bag. Yeah. So they're the best thing if I start to go low, when you can go into a coma quite quickly, it's called a hypo. They're the best thing for me, pastels, to get me out of going into yeah. a hypo. It's funny, Matthew, because people, people who don't understand diabetes think that it's having too much sugar is what sends you into the coma, but it's actually the opposite. Yeah. I always have to explain to people, Yeah, I, it won't do me any good, but I could have as much sugar as I want and it won't kill me straight away. But if I don't eat anything, then I'm in trouble. Yeah, That's I, I mean, I, I had, uh, I've had two bad comas um, during, uh, in 44 years. Mm-hmm. Whereas one, uh, we we're playing Burnley here in a League Cup game. And so we trained in the morning, go home at lunchtime, and then went home at lunchtime, uh, did my testing, and my sugars were quite high. I thought, unusual. Anyway, so I had an injection for my lunch, but I had more insulin to bring my sugars down. Went to sleep in the afternoon, I was living on my own, and uh, I didn't wake up. So, of course, the players, the game's here at White Hart Lane. Uh, I always early, normally turning up. Uh, I didn't turn up, so... Ozzy Ardiles uh, knew a neighbour of mine, so they called a neighbour, and they came over, kept banging the door, couldn't get in, so I think then the police came, uh, got into my house, uh, and I was in the laying on my floor in my bedroom in, in a coma. Mm. So when it, I woke up about 6 o'clock the following morning uh, in Barnet Hospital. Mm. So um, we won the game, by the way, so... But yeah, so that was... So when you're in hospital now, you've got to think, well, why did this happen? Because uh, I do everything I possibly can to stop it happening. And they checked everything. Of course, my blood testing machine, it gets chucked in my football bag, goes travelling with you every game, overseas, in your bag, training, matches. And I just hadn't checked it enough, which I thought would be fine. But anyway, they did a test on my machine, and my machine was giving me a reading that was six over what it should be. So if I was going to be eight, and it was actually 14, yeah. it meant that I'd have like probably three more units of insulin on top of my lunchtime insulin and that would be enough to take rather than taking me down to five or six took me down to like one and then basically yeah. it's coma time I don't so, think anyone realises how hard and this it is why, this is why we, it's important to talk about this with what? Mavsy because I'll say this to this day and he's here with us but I've told him before I, I still don't think Mavsy gets enough credit for what he's done in football with what he's had to go through yeah. day to day to day it's not stop like on a Tuesday, I've got to take an injection and I'll be all right. No, Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday morning, Wednesday afternoon, Wednesday night, Thursday morning, Thursday night, training, 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 playing, playing, playing. Get your food right, get your sugars right, get your injections in, sleep well. He's had to do all this throughout his whole career as a type 1 di- diabetes. And it's... It's incredible. It's, it's It really to needs you. to be said, man. Of course it does. Well, it definitely. And I'd say I can speak now close from my heart with my brother who at 23 he 
he was diagnosed with it and it was hard to see. It changes your life at the age of 23 and still now it's it's part of his life that can be hard with young kids, temperament, all these kind of things. He's completely different. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you, you speak there about your sugar levels. I had to learn. We would go out, we'd, yeah, we'd have a do. few drinks and yeah. you think, right, what do you need when you've had a drink? Do you need some more sugar? Do you need coke? No, because there's the sugar in the beer. So yeah. now you need to bring it down. And, and for me, it was all learning curves and people who don't understand it, how would you, even mm. if you've not experienced it, it's not part of the family and testament to you, Mab, it's unbelievable that you still play and still look so well and, and you're going through this day in, day out and it will always be there for the rest of your life, but you know how to look after yourself. When I was uh, diagnosed, I said that no, I wanted it to be known. So it came straight out of Bristol Rovers. I was a diabetic, on injections every day. And of course, when I came to Spurs, it became a lot bigger. Um, and when I was at Spurs, I had to have two, basically two secretaries. One to do my football mail, wants to do my diabetic mail because I got so many things from diabetics who've just been diagnosed from parents um, and people just wanting a signed photograph from you for the Spurs fans but then diabetic people look we've been diagnosed the family's in you know we can't cope what can you ask can you please advise us so what we did um, we had a, a big uh, basically it was a massive poster made with me a massive picture of me but on the back of it was all things to do with diabetes so that in hospital uh, this is back in the uh, 1980s now um Every time somebody was diagnosed, they were given one of these posters to basically say, it's not the end of the world. No matter what you want on the poster, it says me quoting, whatever you want to achieve in this world, you can still achieve it with diabetes. So uh, so we got that all out there. So that was uh, very, that was great to get that done. And I know it's great you say, Marzi, about... Uh, but I was never a person. I never really. You probably never it. thought about it. Well, I, yeah, but I, never I, really I never really pushed it. the fact that what you no. do. I mean, it's been quite nice recently because... Um, there's a company that wants to do a, want to put a, like a, a film thing together. And it's, uh, it's Mary Tyler Moore, the American actress who's a diabetic. Uh, Nick Jonas, the uh, from yeah. Jonas Brothers, he's a type 1 diabetic. And myself, they're saying that uh, sort of people who've been instrumental in changing positive the lives of diabetics forever. So basically, the, the change has happened from 45 years ago to now. Uh, and they're saying, well, what you were doing was probably instrumental in helping yeah, that. 100%. So yeah, so that's that's quite nice to, when people say that to you. So yeah, it's it has I think uh, coming out and saying it was worthwhile. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean you can imagine doors in training. The lads you should, Dawes just tell the Mickey all the time. You know, <laughs> if you had a hypo in training, they'd be on oh, the maps just falling over again. You know, and, uh, <laughs> honestly, you get nothing so, from the lads. Oh uh, no, no. <laughs> so, but no, it, but you know what it's like. But no, yeah. to be honest, um, yeah. I'm well. I was on four injections every day. I'm now on seven injections every day. I have to get up at three o'clock every morning for my seventh injection. Uh, but it's like I've been doing it for 44 years, Miles mm. Indoors. It's mm. like brushing my teeth. So yeah. ah, keep yeah. smiling. Yeah. Now you mentioned obviously uh, being diagnosed was life changing, but something else was life life changing in in 1982. Bill Nicholson gave Spurs that recommendation, and and you joined us. So uh, tell us about that period of your life, Mabsy. Yeah, so my contract was up at Bristol Rovers, and then it was freedom of contract was just coming in. There was nothing like when the Bosman ruling came in. So basically, then if you're at the end of your contract, you could write to any football club, handwritten letters saying to you, "My contract is up. My name is so and so. I played so many games," and say, "Can you offer me a trial?" So I wrote to every Division One team, every single one of them, and I posted them all on the same day sat back and waited for the influx of letters. I got two responses. <laughs> One from Aston Villa saying, sorry, Gary, can't even offer you a trial. I hope they regret it. <sighs> and one from Birmingham City, Ron Saunders at Birmingham, saying, Gary, we'd love to have you. Do you want to come up and have a chat? 
Birmingham were like a mid-table Division One team, decent side. Ron Saunders was a good manager. He was trying to build a team there. So I went up to uh, Birmingham. I went, went went to the stadium. Uh, had a tour round. Looked great for me. He wanted me to play in midfield. I was a midfield player then. Uh, middle of midfield player. He had Mick Harford up front. He had Noel Blake at the back. Yes, yeah, so, you know, so these players bringing in. Um, so yes, I left Birmingham. He said, Look, "Gary, I'll call you tomorrow and we'll discuss a contract." So I drove back to Bristol that night. Following morning, my phone was rung. Picked up the phone. Said, "Is that Gary Mavitt?" I said, "Yes, it's Bill Nicholson here." So obviously, Bill Nicholson seen my letter. He said, "Look, Gary, I've seen you play a number of times for Bristol Rovers. I've seen you play for the England youth team, the twenty one team. I think you've got the potential to be a Spurs player." Do you want to come and have a chat? So I drove up to drove up to London, and I can honestly remember, Miles, it's so weird because I came out of White Hart Lane onto the high road, drove along the high road, and then as I turned in, in towards the stadium, the West Stand had just been built. So I turned to drive in, you have this massive black wrought iron gates yeah. with all the Spurs emblems all over it. And as I drove through those gates, I just thought, this is where I want to be. And I bet, met Bill Nick there, Took around the stadium, then took me up to Chesson to the training ground to meet Keith Birkenshaw, the manager. So got up to the training ground, and you can imagine me walking to the training ground. The lads have just finished training. They're all there in the canteen. All I'm looking at are these international superstar footballers I'd only ever seen before on Match of the Day or on Top of the Pops, you know. It's like, <laughs> so it was incredible. Yeah, all these super, superstar footballers in front of me. And, of course, I was taken to meet uh, Keith. And Keith basically said to me, look, Gary, look around you. We're international soccer stars here. You're top, top players. Bill has recommended you. He thinks you've got the potential, but we'll work on you for a couple of years. We'll give you a three-year contract. We'll work on you for a couple of years to make you a Spurs player. If you're prepared to work, then I'm prepared to sign you. He said, are you prepared to sign on those terms? I said, yes. And of course, then they had to do a separate medical for my diabetes, basically just to say that I still be alive in three years to see out the contract. Um, so that all got done. And then, so that was the first week in July, 1982. In training that first week, we had a couple of players got injured. Okay. The second week, we're going to Norway on a pre-season tour. So I'm selected an 18-man squad to go to Norway with the team for this tour. First game in Norway... My second week at Spurs, two players got injured. Of those four injured players we had, three of them were midfield players. In the second game in Norway, in the second week after joining Spurs from Bristol Rovers, I was put in the middle of midfield. He's in. And I stayed there for 16 years. So I made my debut in the UK uh, a week later in the Charity Shield at Wembley against Liverpool. And then the following week, we were at home to Luton Town in the first Division One game of the season. You can imagine the fans now. They're sitting there, got their programs, and there's like all these names. Gary Mabbert, what the heck? You know, end of season bargain basement sale, hundred and five thousand pounds. Who the heck is he? Anyway, fortunately for me, in the first five minutes of the game, we got a free kick. Den Hoddle took the free kick. As always, I made a run in the box. As always, Glenn put it right on my head, and I scored. And gents, literally from that moment to this day. My relationship with the Spurs fans and supporters everywhere has been phenomenal. Uh, and that, to me, is what uh, is special about this club. It's amazing when you get the opportunities. I was, I was very similar, Mavs, when I came and four or five centre-halves and then you get the opportunity through maybe injuries. Would that have happened? But you grabbed it with both hands and you scored on your debut. How did that feel? That must have been like, wow, this is amazing. Well, it was. It was. I mean, literally, yeah, I, 
that first season I was here, I was in the middle of midfield. I was a joint top goal scorer with Steve Archibald with 12 goals. Um, yeah, I was a defender when we defended, when we were going forward. I was attacking, getting in the box. Um, I worked hard and, you know, it, we had a really good season. And literally within within two months of joining from Bristol Rovers, and getting in the team, playing in Division 1, I was picked for England. Made my debut for England at, at Wembley against West Germany, like two or three months after joining from Bristol Rovers. People say, Gary, how the heck can you do this? How can you possibly go from Bristol Rovers, Division 3, to suddenly being playing in Division 1, scoring goals, playing for England... Um, against the World Cup finalists, by exactly. The way. <laughs> they just played the World Cup final against Italy, uh, and they had great side. Yeah, it was like yeah, the Forster brothers. They had Karl Heinz Rummenigge, Lipbarski out wide. Fantastic team. Um, and those three months basically shaped your life, didn't they? Your footballing life. Well, basically. yeah, I mean, people sort of uh, say, "But Gary, how is this possible? How can you do that?" I've got no idea. I just felt I don't know why. I'm I'm not an arrogant or totally over top confident person. But driving through those gates, my first time in training, I was expecting my God, I'm new training with like you know, Ken Hoddle and Perriman and like you know all these team. My God, I felt totally at home. Yeah. I didn't feel out of place whatsoever. I, for some reason, I just felt like I fitted in, and there's no way I should have done. Um, but I just felt totally comfortable, uh, very happy, enjoying my football. Uh, of course, I got. So much stick from the lads. You know, of course, the uh, West Country accident, you know, the farmer boy and all that was the usual <laughs> stuff. And of course, they went on our first trip, that trip to Norway. Came back from Norway and uh, got to Heathrow. Of course, on the plane, my feet get quite sore because of my conditions and stuff. But my feet got quite sore after the games. So I took my training shoes off, got back to Heathrow, went to put them on. They've gone. Been, they've gone, disappeared. Oh, they've gone, yeah, I knew you were going to say so that. Got back to Heathrow, all the way through Heathrow with blooming socks on. <laughs> And I got to the conveyor belt and there's my training shoes going around the conveyor belt. Anybody who's listening to this and watching this, you've got to realise footballers are like big kids. You play, ah, oh, yeah, you take your shoes off and you fall asleep. You've never seen your shoes again. Oh, That's just how it is. On one of these trips once, I fell asleep on the plane and they nicked my passport. Oh, <laughs> that's concerning. Oh, that was you can, you can live. You can live without your shoes. You can't live without your passport. You're not getting just through it, it turned up just in time. <laughs> I, I can't believe the players would do that to us, can you? <laughs> oh. Of course not. Schoolboy, that would say, I tell no, you. No, no, you were uh, lucky you got it back. You yeah, exactly. You had, obviously, the whirlwind start, Mabsy, and you, you, you're you already a, a member of this this football team a few months down the line, 82. I'm going to fast forward it two years. UEFA Cup, incredible run to the final. And then, in many ways, and I've spoken to a lot of the players down the years, it's this second leg of the UEFA Cup final in 84 means so much to them because you won a trophy at White Hart Lane and you don't normally get the opportunity to win a trophy on your home soil. What was that like night like for you, Mavzi? Marzi, it was an incredible run. Um, you know, going through, getting to the final, we played fair and order along the way and uh, I was given the role of man-marking Johan Cruyff. Uh, so... It was billed as the Glenn Hoddle v. Johan Cruyff game. I think we were about 4-0 up at half-time. Amazing. Uh, Glenn, had a, yeah. Glenn was outstanding. And obviously, I man-marked Johan Cruyff okay. Fortunately, it was at the end of his career, so he wasn't quite the Cruyff that he what was What was that before. like, Mazzy? For me, it was fantastic. Uh, because he was yeah. a proper icon, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, for me, I mean, Mazzy, it's how silly football can be and coincidences can be. When I was about 10 years of age, I wanted a doggy. My daddy said no, so he said, I'll, but I'll get you a pet. He got, got me tortoises. Okay, and they, I named one of them Johan Cruyff. Wow. So, and then 
Uh, ten years later, I played against him in the game. It's just when life just I mean, doesn't make sense. sense. I know. So, but anyway, so then obviously got through that, got to the final, away and election in the first leg. Uh, they're a very good side, um, and I was struggling. I had a double hernia, so I was struggling with injury. I could only last about sixty-five minutes of a game at most. Uh, we had a lot of injuries. Uh, Ray Clements was out. Dusty Perriman got suspended for the next game. Uh, Glenn Hoddle was out. So yeah, we had a, a bit of a makeshift team. Um, so we we're trying to like force everybody to to be able to play. I had to say double hernia. Ozzy had a knee injury. He was struggling. So went to Anderlecht. I came on at half time. So I could play the second half. So I played the second half in Anderlecht. We drew one all, and then we came back to White Hart Lane. And then Stevie P, Steve Perriman got uh, suspended, booked and suspended for the second game. So me or Ozzy had to play, and I could last sixty five minutes. Ozzy about fifty five minutes. So uh, Keith Bergenshaw. He selected me, but I think mainly because they had a fantastic playmaker called Enzo Schifo, yeah. who was a fantastic Belgium. player. Yeah. So I was given the role of man-marking him as my role uh, for what I could do. And then I lasted for 65 minutes, and then Ozzy came on after that. So we drew one all uh, at home, in front of the home crowd, the most amazing crowd, the amazing atmosphere you can ever imagine. And went to penalties, extra time then penalties. And of course, the penalties started... And all going okay, and then Danny Thomas came to take a penalty. And this is where, and I honestly believe, Tottenham Hotspur did not win that UEFA Cup. It was our supporters. We, Danny took the penalty, and he missed. He's standing there on the penalty spot with his head in his hands, and you can just imagine he's got to turn around and walk back to the halfway line, which feels like miles when you've just missed a penalty in the UEFA Cup final. As he's turned, the whole stadium started singing, there's only one Danny Thomas. And they sang it the whole way and she got back to the halfway line. By the time he got back to the halfway line, every single player knew that even if they missed a penalty, the crowd was still mm. going to love them. And that got the adrenaline pumping and got lifted every single player. And of course, then Parksy had to go out, Tony Parks, Parks yeah. and he made a fantastic save and we won the UEFA Cup. But to me, it was that Anderlecht and us were very similar teams. We were very close in abilities, qualities, yeah, very, very tight, nothing to choose between us. And yeah, I think it was that crowd and the way they responded uh, when Danny missed the penalty that actually got us through to win the final. What was it like to lift that famous uh, trophy? I mean, Marzi, it was, it's just I've seen the photos. I mean, that is some trophy as well, by the way. Yeah, it? it's a very heavy trophy. Uh, but no, it was amazing celebrations that we had. Um, and after the game itself, now it's about midnight because, you know, extra time, penalties, celebrations, and the crowd were outstanding. We then came out about an hour later, or an hour and a half later, to the high road where there's an old building with a, with a balcony. We came to this balcony, I'm not kidding, they shut the whole high road. About 100,000 Spurs fans had turned up from nowhere just to be there. And we came out with a trophy, and you can imagine the whole high road is just wow. Tottenham. Amazing. is going absolutely wild. So no, it was a, a fantastic occasion. Uh, and to win, obviously, the UEFA Cup uh, as a Spurs player. Uh, it was my first trophy for the club and uh, a very special night. Unbelievable. But Mabs is in a rush. He's got another event to go to for the football club. So he's not getting away with it. He's going to come back for part two. And we're going to find out those seven questions that everyone has to do. The FA Cup story, you name it, we're going to get it. Mabs will look forward to it. Me too. Podcast Network.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.